0: I'm Mike Rayner. I'm the director of the British Heart Foundation Health Promotion Research Group in the Department of Public Health of this university. And this is Professor Jane Langdale on my right and Professor Klim McPherson on my left. And when it comes to their turn, I think um, I'm going to get them to say a bit about themselves. So, um, as you know from the programme, we're here to discuss um, what we eat and what to do about the problems in our food system. So how I thought we'd run this session was that we'd each give, uh, well, firstly, a b- bit of an introduction about who we are, then about a five-minute statement um, setting out our case. case. And then we'd open um, the discussion to the floor um, and then take it from there, really. So hopefully this is a very interactive session with us giving you some of our ideas and some of what we're doing by way of research and then um, having a more general discussion. So, uh, I think I'll, I'll start, and then, um, and after me we'll sp- and Jane will speak, and after Jane Klim will speak, and then we'll have the discussion. So I'm Mike Rain, as I said, from the Department of Public Health. My research group is interested in the relationship between diet and disease, particularly cardiovascular disease, because we're principally funded by the British Heart Foundation. Um, But we're increasingly interested in the whole of the food system, not just as it affects health, but how it affects things like the environment and so forth. In fact, the British Health Foundation have given us a bit of money recently to build up a programme of research looking at the interrelationship between um, diet, health and the environment. So uh, that's an exciting new development for us. Um, What else shall I say about myself? Oh, yes. um, I'm not just a researcher. The, one of the main aims of my research group is to influence public health policy. So I'm also um, a trustee of various NGOs and involved with various NGOs around, around the UK and in Europe, principally um, the National Heart Forum, which Clem is chair, um, sustain the Alliance for Better Food and Farming, and the European Heart Network. Um, I've done various sitting on government committees and also I'm an Anglican priest in the Church of England. So I, I have also an interest in food and faith. But I don't think we're talking about that today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> really nice. This atheist... It's, this it's new so, atheist... It uh, is this Sunday, Mike? Yes, it is Sunday, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've rushed um, hot from my church, but I should be this morning. Okay, uh, this is my opening statement um, then, and this is what I want to say. So my thesis is that the food system is broken and needs fixing. And it's not just a screw here and a sticking plaster there that is going to help, but a fundamental overhaul of the whole system. Why do I think it's broken? Well, look around. While about one billion people on this planet are undernourished, over one billion people on this planet are obese or overweight. And obesity is on the increase, as um, Klim will explain in his talk. Simultaneously, uh, with about 7 billion people currently around, and 9 billion, or an estimated 9 billion by 2050, the ability of the food system to feed us all, to support the world's population, is plainly going to be stretched. And I'm hoping Jane will talk about that. But at this point, I want to point out that it's not just that some of us are eating too much and some of us eating too little, but it's how we're producing our food that's the problem. And I should also say, not just how we produce it, but how we buy it and sell it, whether it be on the stock exchange or in supermarkets. Our agricultural system utilizes the world's resources in such a way that is clearly not sustainable. Firstly, we're using those resources up too fast, and secondly, we're using them in such a way that it's having a serious effect on our environment, which in turn is having a detrimental effect on our ability to grow our food. To grow food, you need uh, basically land, water, air, and energy from the sun. Of these four, did I say land, water, air, and energy? Yes. Of these four basic resources, uh, two are now over, uh, now stretched: land and water. We're running out of land to grow food, and water for agriculture is becoming a problem in many parts of the world. Air is not a problem. Neither is sunlight. But one of our uh, problems has been that instead of using sunlight for growing food, we've been using stored sunlight in the form of oil, gas, and oil. (laughs) Oil, gas, gas, and coal, I mean. Consequently, agriculture currently contributes about 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. And if we're going to do our part in protecting the world from global warming, uh, which is beginning to have a major impact on our lives, as well as our food production systems, we're clearly going to need to do something about that. But the current food system is not just broken because it makes some people fat and some people thin. It's unsustainable and is damaging the environment because it's fundamentally unjust. The figures on obesity and undernourishment make that plain enough. But its unsustainability, in particular its heavy dependence on fossil fuels, means that the price of food is extremely sensitive. As oil runs out, the fo- food prices will go up. Um, they did go up when food prices, uh, oil prices went up recently. And it's the poor who are going to be most affected by food prices, simply because they need to spend a larger proportion of their, of their income on food. And one of the underreported reasons for the unrest in North Africa and the near Middle East recently, sometimes somewhat confusingly <coughs> called the Arab Spring, has been the increasing price of fuel and food. Never mind Twitter and Facebook Think bread. (laughs) Furthermore, the world food crisis and the financial crisis are not unrelated, with banks now speculating on food rather than housing as food prices become increasingly unpredictable. So how are we gonna change the food system in such a way that these problems are corrected? The way I would propose is simple. You may think simplistic. My proposal is that we eat less meat and dairy products and eat more plant-based pr- foods, cereals, vegetables, fruit. And to get to my research, in my research group in the Department of Public Health, a small corner or a little-known corner of the uh, university, we've been doing some research that involves modelling the consequences of dietary change in this and other countries. One of the studies we have currently doing is to model some scenarios that have been previously investigated by the government's committee on climate change, the committee set up under the Climate Act to um, to advise the government on on what they should be doing around climate change. So they've looked at both agriculture and food consumption patterns in the UK and, and how we need to change them to meet the government agreed now legal targets for greenhouse gas emissions, or reductions rather, in the UK. They show that a 50% reduction in meat and dairy consumption in the UK would lead to a 19% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions associated with UK agriculture and a 42% reduction in the use of land worldwide needed to produce British food. And we show, in our group, that such a dietary change would have a significant health benefit with 39,000 deaths averted or delayed each year. Before we say, ah, oh, we have to die of something we accept, that this is a crude measure of health and we are doing our best to improve it. But you can use deaths averted or delayed to compare other scenarios that the Climate Change Committee have looked at, such as what would happen if you just ate white meat instead of red meat. And that, incidentally, if you're interested, would lead to a 9% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, but only 2,000 deaths averted or delayed. So basically, my my research group's basic thesis, that it begins to look that what is good for the environment is good for human health. Is this coincidental? Here, I could get into religion, but I won't. Of course, (laughs) Clim won't won't have it really. Of course, cutting meat and dairy products um, is going to be difficult. I'm not suggesting that's going to be easy. Uh, But from another study we've done, we've shown that about 5% of people in the UK are already meeting the um, healthy, climate-friendly diet we're proposing. So it's time that all you lot followed suit. Thanks. (laughs) And me. And me too. So, Jane.
1: Okay, well, thank you, Mike. Uh, My name is Jane Langdale. I'm currently head of the Plant Sciences Department here in Oxford, and I'm also co-director of the Martin School's Plants for the 21st Century Institute. And building on what Mike said, one of the major things that we're interested in at the moment is that essentially when the population rises to 9 billion in 2050, we are going to struggle to produce enough food. And so my proposal is that the way that we need to solve this is we need to do two things. We need to work out how to make plants harvest sunlight more efficiently so that they can produce more yield per area of land that they grow on. And we need to work out how to make plants take up phosphate more efficiently. And as a bit of background to that, uh, I will tell you that if you don't already know, 37% of the world's land is used for farming. It's been fairly constant, but now it's falling on a per capita basis by 1.6% per annum. So the population's going up and the amount of land that we can farm is going down. Phosphate, as I'm sure you know, is a finite resource. Water is a very valuable resource, and like most valuable resources, there is no market price for it. Water is not traded internationally, and yet it is, I would argue, the most valuable resource that we have going forward. Rainfall in the future will be less predictable. It may not be less, but it will be less predictable, and that means we will have floods and we will have droughts, and plants aren't used to coping with that when they're expected to produce large amounts of seed or grain. Nitrogen fertilizers are a byproduct of fossil fuels and we know that that is a finite resource. And we also know that there is we have a global problem of soil erosion because of inefficient farming practices. So, our resources are being stretched, they're going to be stretched even more. By 2020, biofuels could actually consume 13% of the global grain harvest. 15% of the vegetable oil and 30% of the sugarcane harvest. That again is a stretch on our food resource. I just want to throw in something here about China. China is currently food surp- has a food surplus. 31% of the food that's currently grown globally is traded internationally. If China starts to become a food deficit country and needs to import food, that will have a huge impact on that 31% number. It's been estimated that if China becomes as meat-intensive as the US, they will need 200 million more cows. And those cows will need an enormous amount of grain to be fed by, more grain than a human would need. So there is, coming back to Mike's argument, there is an argument to stick with the grain and not with the meat. And I want to move just... In the final part, to talk specifically about rice, which is an area that my research group is working on. So, three billion of the projected nine billion, three billion of the current seven billion people in the world depend on rice for survival. In Asia, it's 30% of their caloric intake. More than 90% of the world's rice is actually grown in Asia, and it stays in Asia. Only 6% of the world's rice is traded internationally at any level. And again, I'm just going to mention China here. China currently does not import rice. The major exporting rice countries are Vietnam and Thailand, whereas Indonesia, the Philippines, and Bangladesh cannot grow enough rice to feed their populations. So they are dependent on imports from Vietnam and Thailand. A few years ago, China had a bad harvest and needed to import rice. And they were able to push the price up to the point where it was economically a disaster for the Philippines because they couldn't afford then to import the rice to feed their population. I mean, they did, and they had to get aid, and they had to go into deficit. But China, if China in- imports more rice, as it is likely to do in the future, that problem will only get worse, and the Asian rice market will become even more economically unstable. So what are we doing in my group? So... About 20 years ago, as a, as a young postdoctoral researcher in the States, I was doing some work on looking to see how maize leaves actually developed. So essentially I'm a fundamental uh, plant geneticist and I was trying to understand how those leaves developed their photosynthetic <coughs> cell types. And maize is what's known as a C4 plant. It's very efficient at capturing sunlight and converting it into sugars. Much more efficient than plants that are known as C3 plants, such as rice and wheat. And it's more efficient because it compartmentalizes its photosynthetic reactions between these two cell types that I was interested in. And what's happened over the last 20 years is that technology has moved on to the level that we are now in a position where we are trying to convert rice into a C4 photosynthesizing plant. And we're using some of that knowledge that I gained and many others gained 20 years ago in understanding what happened in maize. And so we have a project that aims to convert rice into a C4 photosynthesizer. That will mean it will use sunlight more efficiently, it will use less nitrogen, and it will need less water. And bearing in mind that in 2050, one hectare of land in Asia has got to feed 43 people, whereas now it only needs to feed 28. We need to be able to make that change. Thank you.
2: And to Klim. Thank you, Mike. Um, a, a little bit of background is probably appropriate. What I'm mean talking about is a, is a major public health issue, which is essentially... Overweight obesity. And, um, and I come at that from not from necessarily from a medical point of view, but from a more mathematical point of view. And until 2004, I was sort of jobbing epidemiologist in the Department of Public Health here, working largely on issues to do with the safety of oral contraceptives and other aspects of women's health and HRT. So that was my main function. But in 2004, the government chief scientist, a fellow called Dave King, uh, who ran a subsidiary part of his department, which was called Foresight, uh, was asked by the government to investigate the uh, effects, likely effects of growing weight gain, overweight and obesity, growing prevalence of overweight and obesity, <coughs> And what the consequences would be. And foresight is a, is a particular arm of government which is funded by the government office for science and, and, and basically run by the government chief scientist. And their, the idea that they have is that they take on a, an issue, a, a public, not necessarily a health issue, but, a, but an issue which is going to affect our lives and look into the very long-term future. They, they, they have a, 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 a way of looking at things which goes on for 50 years. And basically they took on... Obesity. And the reason they took on obesity in about 2004 was that uh, it was quite apparent from regular surveys being conducted in in England, Wales and across the UK and, and in many other countries that the proportion of people who had a BMI greater than 25 or a BMI, that's a body mass index, a BMI greater than 25 or a body mass index greater than 30, which is obese, was going up or in almost everywhere in the world, notwithstanding the malnutrition that was also coexisting in various parts of the world. But nonetheless, in, the, in, mo- in most developing countries or developed countries, the proportion of people who are overweight or obese was going up and it wasn't clear what precisely why that was happening. And much more importantly, it wasn't clear what could be done about it. Um, and so the government office of science in 2004 took on its kind of annual campaign mantra which in 2004, it took to be obesity. Uh, it's done many other things. Uh, it, it, every year it takes on a new thing, and every year there's a new report talking about what the future holds for us, which might or might not be dealable with. And foresight was just one of those, foresight on obesity was just one of those things. And the components of the, of the research that were going to happen as a consequence of this initiative from the government chief scientist were essentially to understand the science, to try and understand the politics, to try and understand what this might mean in terms of what would happen to our health in 2050 or 2040 or 2030, and whether there was any kind of intervention that was going to be helpful in that particular process, and I think the reason it came up high on the on the priority list of the foresight programme was that hitherto, until that time, 2004, various reports had been produced by the Department of Health and other departments which had essentially said, this is a real problem, and it's going up, and if it goes on going up, then there's gonna be a massive issue associated with disease associated with, um, with obesity. And this thing, uh, the Foresight report, re- re- published its report in 2007, under the aegis of the government chief scientist, and basically what it said was that whereas weight gain is clearly a simple issue associated with energy balance. We eat, we consume more calories than we expend, and we do that over a long period of time, and if we do that over a long period of time, we get fatter. Uh, that is obviously a massively important component part of the problem. But the question is, why is it going up in the way it's going up? And the, the way it was going up in 2004 2007 was quite alarming in, if you looked at the data. And the data comes from uh, General House, you know, the health. Health Survey for England, which is undertaken every year, about 10-12,000 people are interviewed randomly, and they're weighed and they're measured, and we can have therefore reliable information on on the extent to which the proportion of people who are overweight or obese is changing. And what was clear when he looked at that data, those data, was that the inexorable rise in obesity was very, very well behaved. Every year was the same as every other year in the sense that Every year there was a greater proportion of overweight people and a greater proportion of obese people than there were the year before, essentially in all sexes and all ages, and it was inexorable. What was happening was that the proportion of people of a given age, given sex, uh, was going up every year from about 1975 or thereabouts and until about 1975. that, That trajectory was essentially flat. So that something had happened at about 75, 80, which was causing this population and all other populations in the world, as far as we could tell where where these things are measured, to become more obese, and that raised an issue about what what the policy implications were, what the sensible implications associated with government strategy could be to try and deal with that because you will know as well as I that getting obese makes you more um, uh, vulnerable to all sorts of diseases in particular cardiovascular disease, in particular various cancers, endometrial cancer, for example. And in particular, the strong one is type 2 diabetes. So the relative risk of of, of becoming a type 2 diabetic if you've got a BMI of 35 compared to a BMI of 22 is something like 80-fold. So every year, a person with a BMI of 35 has an 80-fold increased risk of becoming type 2 diabetic, diabetic than a person with a BMI of 22. And that's quite an alarming number because if you smoke 20 cigarettes a day all your life you get to have about a 20-fold increased risk of lung cancer associated with that exposure 20 or 30 years down the line so it's, it's quite an interesting relative risk because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pathological relationship between obesity and type 2 diabetes and type 2 diabetes is not a nice disease to have you don't need me to tell you so basically, we, we got, I, wasn't, I didn't know anything about obesity when I started this process in 2004, we, but we bid to do a component of the foresight report on obesity, which is here, which was published in 2007. Uh, and the component that we, 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 we bid to, to do was uh, the modeling. So what we did was modeling, basically, mathematical epidemiological modeling. And that essentially had two components. One was to try and project what was happening to uh, the weight distribution of this population up until 2050, and then to anticipate the consequences of that change in weight distribution up until about 2050, because that was clearly going to be part of the, of the political <coughs> process. There were other aspects of, of components, which was a basic science. We, we, we put out a, a request for people to write definitive papers on what we understood about various aspects of, of growing obesity. We hired some people who are, very, who are professionally involved in, in, in anticipating what the future hold in terms of policy, in terms of politics, in terms of international movements, in terms of all sorts of things. So they were sort of futurists. And we had sort of basic scientists. But we did, we did, the, we did the modeling. Now, essentially what we did was to anticipate what would happen in terms of the trajectory of obesity. And I've already told you, it's a well, well-behaved curve. It just went up, up and up. Each year it went up a bit. a a, a reliable measure of different ages and different sexes Uh, and you could see what was happening quite easily and you could predict what would happen by 2050 by just uh, just extrapolating those lines forward nothing more sophisticated than that although we did make them bend a bit so they didn't go more than 100% or less than 0% so we, we made them sort of bend a bit and we also made the component bits of BMI, you know, less than 20, 20 to 25, 25 to 30, 35 to 40, 45 to 50, and 50 plus, whatever else, we made them all add up to 100 as we went, so we could actually anticipate what would happen. Now, the, the point about that was that, um, as I've said, the um, behaviour of measured BMI amongst this population in England and Wales is extremely predictable. There's no question, you can pr- essentially predict what the proportion of people of a given BMI, of a given age, and a given sex, will be in two or three years' time, without any doubt at all, because the lines are still like that, and there's hardly any variation uh, around, around the data, so it's utterly predictable. Of course, it's not predictable to 2050, but we extrapolate the lines because we don't know what's going to happen between now and 2050, and it's a hell of a long way ahead, and all sorts of things could happen, so that is not very predictable, as far as we can tell. But we did; we were able to predict reliably two or three years years ahead. And what emerged from that work, which was in the foresight report, was that the rise in obesity amongst various groups of this population—and there's quite interesting bits about that, which you might want to be interested in. For example, there's a strong social gradient amongst women, but there's not a strong social gradient amongst men. Social class one women are very good at controlling their weight. Social class one men are not very good at controlling their weight. And that gives rise to a lesser, a lesser uh, social class gradient amongst men, uh, amongst yes, amongst men than amongst women. Uh, but nonetheless, there is a social, a social class gradient, which is sort of uh, slightly predictable. But what it what we said was in our report that come 2050, which is a hell of a long way hence, uh, there will be something like 60. If nothing else changes, there will be about 60 or 70 percent of people obese, BMI greater than 30. And uh, that is an extremely large number and would give rise, in the case of men, for example, to there being, let's say, men aged 40 to 50, by 2030, about 30% of such men having type 2 diabetes. Now, ultimately, that, of course, is unsustainable. If you have a large number of men with type 2 diabetes in a population that simply isn't sustainable because it would require massive amounts of extra expenditure on health services, massive amounts of extra expenditure on all all kinds of social care, and it would mean that life expectancy would would start going down. And you will know, I'm sure, as well as I, that cardiovascular disease rates are decreasing in this country, as they are in many other countries, as a consequence of our ability to... uh, prevent and smoke less and eat more healthily, basically. So cardiovascular disease is going down quite nicely. If what we predict would happen to obesity, cardiovascular disease would have to start going up again in 2040, Sorry, 2018 or 2017, because it would overtake the beneficial effect of not smoking and, and, and eating better. Uh, so giving rise to a, to a greater number of people with cardiovascular disease. So basically what we said was, if things go on as they are, we'll be spending 50 billion more per year at constant prices on looking after the health of our community simply as a consequence of rising obesity. And that was a number which shocked the government a bit, I think. And uh, they said, well, we've got to do something about it. So the government said, well, okay, well, we'll accept all the recommendations of the Foresight Report, which was published in 2007, and we'll implement policies. And you will know about healthy weight, healthy lives, and other government policy policies which are designed to uh, do something about the rising, the rising uh, rate of obesity, because after all, which is their responsibility. And basically what we're seeing now is some changes in the trajectory that we predicted in 2007 with respect to obesity growth. And what I mean by that is the prevalence of obesity's growth. And um, essentially the, the changes are quite interesting. I don't know whether you want to guess what they are. But if I just divide the population, let's say, between men and women, and, and we're talking about grown-ups, children are, are doing wonderfully. Children are flattening off. They're not as obese, they're getting much. The, the, the rate of rise of obesity for children is, 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 is beautifully flattening off now and looking like it's not going to be anything like as dire as we predicted. And that's because of essentially government policy, and also Jamie Oliver and other things, of course, in television programs, <laughs> and many other aspects of our, of our current life, giving rise to a quite reassuring flattening off of the rise in obesity amongst kids, but they're still too fat. I mean, they're they're flattening off, but they're still, too too many of them are are obese and overweight, even now. It's got to start coming down. But if I just divide the population into two groups, men, female, under 40, over 40, so there's four groups there. uh, Who is doing best in terms of uh, uh, responding to the problems associated with obesity? I've got four groups. Men under 40, men over 40, women under 40, women over 40. Who's doing best out of that lot with respect to controlling their weight? Do you have any idea? Women over 40. Men oh, over Very good. <laughs> who, would, who would have voted for men under 40? You're right. <laughs> and it's quite, an interesting, it's quite an interesting phenomenon because I don't know quite what the reason for that is, but there's no question that on recent data, post 2007, the um, number of the, propor- the proportion of overweight and obese, men under 40, is for sure, going down much faster than it is for women. And it's not changing at all for men over 40, nor for women over 40, so it's still going on up for them. And that's a drag, of course, because it's women over 40 and it's men over 40 who get ill as a consequence of obesity. People who are under 40 just are obese. They don't necessarily or they will, of course, they get t- much more type 2 diabetes, but they don't get ill in anything the same, the same rate. And so we're faced with this dilemma, which is a bit like climate change. It's an inexorable rise in something which is kind of hostile to our, to our lives. And basically what it boils down to is that we have proved ourselves unable to adapt to, I mean, we, what we have done is we have, we, we have created an environment for which we are ill-suited genetically. And the environment to which we are ill-suited genetically is basically a lot of people wanting to sell us a lot of food which, was, which is largely fattening and not nutritious. And that's great for the people who want to sell us the food because it on the whole tastes nice, we like it a lot, it's very available, you can go to a station or a bus stop or anywhere you like and pick up much of this junk and eat it when you're hungry, because most of us are hungry most of the time, and get fatter. And they've got very good at doing that and that's really the problem. So it's a, I think it's, a, it's a, an environmental issue to which our genetics is ill-adjusted and if we don't do something about it radically, um, then we will end up fat and with type 2 diabetes and getting much more endometrial cancer and cardiovascular disease and other things as well because the progression amongst the people over 40 is, seems to be inexorable. Government policy might have an effect. It's much too early to tell. Uh, and it might not have an effect. But if it doesn't have an effect, we're, well, I think we're, uh, we're all slightly doomed by this growing, growing obesity epidemic. And that's, uh, I think, a major worry because... Clearly, um, we are increasingly not as well fitted to our environment as we should be, and that's a consequence of our environment changing much faster than our genes changing, and our ability to control our our weight. So there we are, we just published recently in The Lancet a series of papers on what should happen. And this is basically because we're now saying it's not enough to tell people what the problem is, and it's not enough to try and persuade people to eat less, and it's not enough to try and persuade people to exercise more because whereas people will do that, some people will do that, it wouldn't be enough in terms of population health for that to happen amongst the moderate minority who will respond to that kind of of initiative. We need government action. And government action, I think, is probably a little bit alien to many governments, but sometime it has to become more acceptable to them because there is an inexorable problem which they're going to have to face sometime, and that is you know, 40% of men age 50 being type two diabetics, which is kind of going to happen unless, unless governments move. And what they have to do is they have to worry a lot about whether the food labeling is adequate and appropriate for people traffic light labelling on the front of packets, traffic light labelling in all the restaurants, so you know how much fat, you know how much sugar, you know how much salt and you know how many calories, there are in what you're going to buy. Prohibition of the advertising of junk food to kids, which is basically partly already done, but uh, much more um, restrictions on marketing junk food by price controls, various price controls, so making healthy food cheaper than junk food. Unless governments do that kind of thing, I'm afraid we're kind of in for a bit of a Disastrous next to 30 or 40 years. That's all I want to say. But I mean, that's basically where we are, and we're trying to persuade governments to do that. And the government, as you know, is trying to persuade the industry to do that. And industry is not responding very intelligently about what they what they have to do. And the reason is obvious because they have an obligation to their shareholders and not an obligation to the people they sell the food to. And basically, shareholders like the idea of investing in companies which make money, and they make money by selling us junk. So all that kind of all that kind of stuff goes on. So there you are. That's me uh, in, I don't know how long, five minutes or probably (laughs) 10 (laughs) minutes.